What's up, podcast? Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols. On today's episode, we have Adam Young of Adam Young Golf, of the Practice Manual, which is a best-selling book on Amazon. You should go check it out. Anyway, he didn't tell me to say that. I told you to say that. I told you to do that. (laughs) Anyway, you're going to love this episode because we talk about so many facets of the mental game. Adam strikes such a good balance between physical and mental, and he he can speak to both so well, and and in his physical technique help, he puts in mental game philosophies, so I think you're really going to like this one, and towards the end, we talk about a little bit of U.S. Open stuff, just based on just the relevance of the time that we're in, uh, so yeah, you get a little bit of like how to play tough golf courses, how to play U.S. Open type setups, um, So yeah, I think you're going to love this one. Let's get into it. I started coaching at 21, so I'm I'm 36, 37 now. I I forget my age. I was 84, yeah, so it's 36. Yeah, yeah, so I've I've been coaching full-time since since then, so I've got a lot of hours in. Yeah. and I started golf quite late as a player. I started at age 15. So that allowed me to attack it more from an intellectual perspective. Mm. So, you know, I got loads of books out. I got Faldo's book out and Ledbetter's book out before I, I uh, worked for Ledbetter. So I learned his model before I went to work for him. And uh, I suppose I learned a lot from that. I learned some good things, you know, how, how a golf swing works. But I also learned not to go down the rabbit hole of technique. I got to the point where I was incredibly frustrated with my game because my swing was looking better and better and I just wasn't hitting it better. I know a lot of people argue, well, okay, well, we know more about mechanics now, which is true. Uh, but I still feel like the stuff I was working on back then was still good mechanics. It was still good mechanics from a macro, macro perspective. So, you know, how the swing looks on camera. I think the, the part that was missing for me was the understanding of micro mechanics. And what I mean by that is, you know, everybody knows TrackMan these days or GC Quad, um, the Foresight Sports. So loads of good radar systems. I actually own a GC Quad. And that can get into the stuff that we can't see. So whether your path is one degree more out in or whether the face was presented one degree more open or closed or whether you struck a couple of millimeters more towards the heel or the toe, All of those have a very significant effect on the direction. So to put that into perspective, if you were just two degrees offline with the club face, just two degrees, you can barely see it. Um, That ball at 250 yards will, will curve about 20 yards offline. So that's enough to miss a fairway easily. I mean, you know, unless the fairway is 40 yards wide. So when people miss a fairway, they always say things like, oh, I didn't turn my shoulders 10 degrees extra, or I didn't keep my head down, or I did something wild in my downswing. They think that it was a huge over-the-top move. And yet, if you actually videoed their swing, and I always do this for players, I video their best shots and their worst shots, put them side by side. In 99% of cases, they're identical. They're identical. And the difference was a change in, in some of the Mac in some of the micro stuff. Right. And it's, so, you know, yeah. In, imperceptible differences that yeah. make a huge difference. Exactly. Yeah. And that helps with, uh, when it comes to the psychology part of it, it, it helps to, to stop you beating yourself up a little mm. bit. You know, when I, when I used to hock one left out of bounds, I used to kill myself because I said you know I, I think there's something huge a change in my swing that would that should have been controllable whereas the reality that I know now is it was something small that changed that wasn't really controllable if we get really down into the nitty-gritty of it we can't control that one or two degrees we can control patterns we can improve our outcomes over time with the right training the right thought processes but ultimately what our body gives us on the day is is you can't control it (laughs) yeah so how often does when you're working directly with a player i mean is it like is it usually strictly mechanical or does it venture into talking mental game in that way i would say i'm a weird coach in that probably 90 percent of my lessons could be classed as mental Mm. 
not in terms of I'm standing there, you know, it's not, it's not laying someone on the couch and going through Freudian philosophy with them. It's more, you know, what's your understanding of impact? So they hit a bad shot. I'll say, so what do you think happened? What, what do you think caused that? Because I know what caused that. You know, I've got the Trackman numbers, the GC quad numbers right next to me. Uh, but I'll say, what do you think caused that? So, you know, a player might be in to out with their path. They might hit a nice draw. And then all of a sudden they hit a pull hook out of nowhere. Now I'm looking at the numbers and I see that the only thing that's changed was the club face. Because we know the club face is the dominant part for start direction as well. So the club face closed down a bit more, caused the ball to start more left and curve more left. I then ask that player, what do you think happened? And they say, oh, I came over the top on that one. And now you can see that that player has a psychological misunderstanding. So that player is going to fix the wrong thing. If they're left to their own devices with that level of understanding, they're going to fix the wrong thing. So that's a case where most coaches will probably jump in and just fix the club face. But then that person has this kind of um, battle in their head because they think it was the path that caused it. And so, like I said, I'm approaching it more from a, how do you perceive that shot? Let's educate you more on why that ball happened, why that shot happened. So that's kind of the first layer of it is understanding what actually creates the golf ball flight. Mm. And it's pretty simple for, for the most part. I mean, you can simplify the ball flight laws. They can get complicated, but you can simplify them down for people. Um, you know, for a real beginner, for example, I'll talk about how, just the club face is the, is the main part of direction. I'll say all else being equal, club face more left, result more left. Mm. It's not a full sto uh, story, but it, it, it's accurate. Mm. It is accurate. All else being more equal, mm -hmm. the club face change will change the result. Uh, and then you can layer on deeper levels of understanding. So, you know, with a, a lead player, I might be talking about gear effect. Mm. So how with a driver, a toe strike can cause a hook as mm. well. So again, that helps players once they've got that level of understanding, it helps them self-coach, self-identify and, and fix the right thing. Because yeah. I see so many golfers fix the wrong things mm -hmm. and then they go down a wrong rabbit hole and they, uh, we call it self-organize into, into a mess. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the first level of understanding that I talk about. The next level would be awareness. So once they know what creates a good shot, are they actually aware of what they're doing? So, you know, I might get players to hit shots and say, where, where have you struck the last few on the face? And they might say, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> or they might say, they might see a shot shoot off to the right and say, I towed it. Mm -hmm. And then I show them they actually healed it. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of beginner, beginner thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then with advanced players, we're working on how, how aware are they to the nearest millimeter? You know, I've got a device that tells you that. So they hit a shot and they say, I think that was five millimeters off the toe. And they look and it was 10. Hmm. And so we can really build the awareness up. Um, and then from the next, the next layer down then is now you, now that you know what creates a good shot, you know what you are doing. The next level would be what tools can you implement to create a change in that? Again, this is all an intellectual thing. Mm -hmm. So for in my own game, if I'm hitting it left one day, I have a list of tools that I can implement to neutralize that. I would start with my right-hand grip. If that doesn't work, I might open the face address a little bit. If that doesn't work, I might feel um, a karate chop through the swing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can have more complicated interventions. You could have simpler interventions. Uh, but it's, it, the point is, do you have interventions and do you know how they affect your game? So, again, all of this is psychological at, yeah. the, at the moment. So yeah. would you... Would you prescribe to a player in a tournament, like before you go into a tournament, have this list of things to like, okay, you're on the fourth hole. Every, every shot has started left and missed left. So you know what to do now. So I want you to do this in a tournament. Like, is that what you would prescribe? 
Yeah, you've got to have, I call it golf con. It's like a DEF CON system. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's levels of yeah. escalating. And so, you know, the first shot that you hit that's bad, just, just ignore it. Not, not ignore it, note it down mentally. But you don't necessarily change, start to change your pattern or in, in, implement an intervention based on one bad shot. Two bad shots, okay, let's heighten the awareness a little bit. Three bad shots in a row that are similar, or, th- or three that are of the similar pattern. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily have to be in a row. Now it's time to say, all right, could I implement something here to neutralize that pattern? It could be something as simple as you've hit every shot left, you might aim, aim more to the right side of the fairway. You know, people, lots of amateur golfers say, well, that's a mistake. That's compensating. And yet you listen to guys like Tiger talk. I've got several interviews on on video with Tiger talking about how he picks different aim spots based Mm -hmm. on how he's hitting it on the day. Mm -hmm. So you get a a crowd member saying, what do you do if the ball's falling right more? He says, I just pick a different aim spot for that day. Or I try and fix it initially. And if it seems like it's going to be a big fix, I just pick a different aim spot. Right. So So it's golf con, like if it's, like I'm snap hooking everything. I need to do something. I can't pick an aim spot for a snap hook, right? It's- well, yeah, you've got different levels of intervention. Um, and so, uh, like I said, my first fix for, uh, for an issue is actually just to change the right hand. Because for me, a big change in the right hand has a small effect on the outcome. Right. So, you know, if I make a massive change with the right hand that feels really uncomfortable, I actually only, only change the outcome by about 10 yards or so. So a smaller change can be about five yards. So that's great if I need a subtle calibration of the pattern. However, like you said, if you're snap hooking it 40 yards, mm. then that actually is where my left hand comes in. So a left hand, I say the right hand is like a surgeon for fine surgery and the left hand is more like a sledgehammer or the boxer. Okay. So a small change in the left hand creates a much bigger change in the outcome. I don't like using the left hand because mm. the change is so big it can become inconsistent. But you might actually want that if, if like you said, you're snap hooking it out of bounds. So again, that goes on to the next level. Again, it's not only what interventions do you have but do you know how those interventions change the result and again i work with players i will say i will ask them what could you do to change the the left shot they'll give me a list of things i'll say well let's test them let's hit 10 balls doing that intervention let's hit 10 balls doing the other one and then we note using the numbers we can say okay this one changed it by 10 yards this one changed it by 20 yards so now you have two tools and you can implement the right tool based on what is happening on the day. Oh. And so again, all of these things are technically they're, they're mental things. Yeah. It's all understanding. It's all knowing your own game. I call it game management. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it sounds, I, I think a player, a beginner or whatever, even a good player would think, if I'm in the middle of a round and I'm and I've got a pattern going of bad shots that I can't play, I need to make a change. And mm-hmm. and it's prob we probably overestimate the change that we need to make. It's probably mm-hmm. not we we would never we would never think to make a a small one that could make a small difference. And I guess to me as a when I play I I fall into the same default of, okay, I'm hitting a huge slice. I must need to make a huge difference in my swing because it looks like a big problem, but it could be a small fix. And I haven't, I haven't put that list in place. Like you're saying, uh, that's interesting. Well, well, yeah. I mean, from a, a pure physics perspective, the difference between a shot that hits the middle of the fairway and a huge slice is probably three degrees of right. club face presentation. So yeah. three degrees is almost imperceptible. Now, this is kind of, I think, double-edged sword is the right phrase, a good, a good and a bad thing at the same time. Right, yeah. In that when it comes to actually feeling the change, we, in order to change it three degrees, we actually have to feel probably like a 10 degree change, but the reality of it is it's not. Okay. So people feel a monumental difference and it changes the outcome. Now that can be frustrating because logically we know, well, I'm only trying to change this a small amount and it won't budge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it can be frustrating, but it's actually a good problem because 
once we get our pattern in range, it allows us to finely calibrate things. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we can produce a big effort to have a small outcome allows that fine calibration. It can just be frustrating when we're trying to change a pattern that's bad. So it's, it's, as I said, it's both a good and a bad thing. I see. Right. Like pushing a super heavy weight, a lot of effort, very little movement. You can move it small increments. A, yeah, a super yeah. like a balloon. If you put up a lot of effort, it's going to move a lot. So I, I like that a lot of effort, small increment is easier to fine tune the change. I've kind of used the idea of a, a mouse for a okay. computer and you know, you can click the button where a small change zooms it across. Yeah. And that can be frustrating because you know, it's, it's and, and actually beginners and juniors have that issue. If you ask a junior to make a change, they'll overdo it because yeah. juniors are wired that way. But once we've had a lot of reps and you get older and you've put more time in, our patterns are very resistant. Mm. And so that's much more like when you click the button on the mouse and you have to make this huge mm. movement and the mouse barely budges. And that mm. could be frustrating again. But again, that actually allows for fine calibration. So when I'm doing video editing and I need really fine calibration, I put it on that mode. But then it's obviously frustrating when you're trying to zoom around yeah, the screen. Right, right. So, I um, yeah, I, I give too many analogies. Sometimes <laughs> it, gets, it gets lost, but that's how yeah, it, yeah. I think of it in my head. Right. That's, that's like, well, wait, wait, we were just talking about this. Now we're talking about a mouse on a computer. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I do yeah. the same thing. <laughs> so um, I read your Golden Rule article, and I don't know how long it's been since you wrote it, but it it seemed like the most maybe most personal thing that you've written that I've read of yours. Maybe you've done some like more introspective things, but that one seemed like this is directly related to what I struggled with and how I overcame it kind of mostly mental. I mean, like maybe give a, a few sentence synopsis of that article for people that are listening and everyone that's listening or watching should go read that. It's really good. Hopefully the website's working for the person yeah, watching yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Most people, but yeah, maybe a little synopsis of that article. Cause I really liked it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a mental coach, right. I'm predominantly technique, but I have read, you know, my twenties, I read a lot of self-help, um, more for motivational purposes and things like that. I was very into the, the concept of success back in my twenties. I was like, what can I do to be successful? And then all of a sudden you, you start to achieve certain things in your life and you realize it wasn't all, all there is cracked up mm -hmm. to be. You know, that, not that you're not a happy person, but you look for different areas in fulfillment. Um, but I suppose along, along that route of self-help, I, I start, started picking up things that were uh, helped me in, in my mental game with golf, uh, even though they weren't golf-specific. And, you know, listening to things like Buddhism, even nihilism, existentialism, um, stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, meditations, things like that. They all kind of point towards the same thing, which was the golden rule of the article, which is stop caring about the outcome so much. Stop, stop caring about it. And again, that's a, a good and a bad thing at the same time, because having a drive to succeed, it does help you. You know, if, you, if you're like, I really want to do good at this, that, that's a good motivational force and you will do certain things. But that can also be a bad thing because it increases our expectations and things like anger, frustration, pressure, anxiety, usually they are all a, a result of the outcome not matching our expectations. You know, so our expectations perhaps being too high. Or, you know, we're just de demanding too much of ourselves. And like I said, you know, I, I'll hit a bad shot and yes, I feel the anger. But then you go into the logical mode. It's like, well, well what does that really mean? Why am I angry about that shot? I said, well, I'm pissed off because it's gone left. It's like, yeah, but why does that anger you? Because, oh, this made me look stupid. And so, well, even that... I mean, that, not that that's true. You don't look stupid because you hit it left. Pros mm -hmm. hit it left all the time. And like I said, it could be two or three degrees of club mm -hmm. face error. And when you go into the, like the science of free will and our ability to control these things, it's not controllable. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't 
necessarily our fault. We're not stupid for hitting a left shot. Mm. It's not, it wasn't intentional. Um, So why are you beating yourself up about it? And then you go deeper again and say, what does it really mean? I mean, (laughs) when you're dead and gone, I hate to be too nihilist, but when you're dead and gone, no one's going to care about that. Mm -hmm. Even in the moment, your playing partners don't care about Mm -hmm. the result. And even if you play your best round and you win your club championship, doesn't really mean anything i mean 10 years it's it's just a nice memory that's all it was mm. it's it all links to kind of ego and just caring about it too much and, and attaching too much meaning to it all and i know you could say that okay tiger woods putting for history mm. yes that means something because that's going down in the history books. But ultimately, I mean, it depends on your, your real deep philosophy. Things like the afterlife and stuff like that, mm. if we're going to go too deep. But <laughs> I don't want to go there. But, um, okay. <laughs> you know, if in the real grand scheme of things, even putting for history doesn't matter. Mm. And so I know lots of people would disagree with that. And that's absolutely fine. Um, lots of people will say, oh, well, this, isn't that kind of, of a depressing philosophy? And for me, actually, it freed me up and made me happier because it freed me up to say, well, if none of this means anything, I get to choose what I do with my golf. And I chose that, well, instead of seeking betterment, I'm going to just seek to enjoy it. Mm. So the next time I go out, I'm just going to try and enjoy the company a little bit more so it changed you know i instead of being there focused on the tea and uber um uber zoned in i was more chatting with my playing partners mm. oh so how's your day been how's your life and i come off around a round of golf the irony of all that is i would play better mm. because when i was in this uber focus mode and and seeking my best rounds i would get upset more uh, and I would get frustrated more and I, I would come off playing worse as a result of that. Whereas when I was more relaxed, okay, I probably made a few lax errors like, oh, I didn't pick the right club on that one. Mm. Oh, I forgot to take into account the wind because I wasn't uber focused. But that would be um, nicely balanced by the fact that I wouldn't be getting so upset and I wouldn't be so obsessed with the score. And at the end of the day, it's a win-win because I came off either hitting it better or I came off enjoying the round a little bit more because I got to know my playing partner a little bit better. Mm. Yeah, and you were less less mad about bad things. You're probably happier as a whole if you're less mad about results or, um, yeah, your your emotions are less of a roller coaster when things go good and bad, right? Exactly, exactly. Much less of a roller coaster. You might you might experience fewer highs Mm. as a result of that kind of Buddhist philosophy of Mm. nothing, nothing matters. Uh, But actually you can choose if you want to, when I hit a good shot, I actually look at that and go, that's awesome. (laughs) Do you realize how many stars had to align to hit that shot? You know, you're swinging this small club head around your body and a mile an hour (laughs) and you have to return it to within 0.3 degrees Mm. to hit that shot, maybe even less. And so it's actually a a good way of getting the best out of it. The bad shots, you can just be like, ah, it's, it's, it's nothing. And the good shots, yeah, that was really special. Whereas I know a lot of players, you look at the tall players and they're the complete reverse. Mm. On their good shots, they stay unemotional, right? Lots of them, they don't celebrate. Whereas on their bad shots, slamming a club and berating themselves oftentimes, they have to act, they actually have to have professional people train that out of them. That's what golf sports, sports psychologists do. And I think that is probably an innate thing in all of us because that kind of mindset does help us strive for more. It is a motivational force. Um, but ultimately, whether it's good for you, I don't believe it's good mm. for you long term. I think we can be trained into a different mindset that allows us to, to move forward and um, not have the negative effects. So. so I've I mean, if anyone's listening, I'm just going to just going to post that from now on what you just said for the last three, five minutes and just everyone listen to this. Over and over and over, because that is... Well, to summarize it, I know you asked for right. one sentence That's thing, it. and I didn't That's give it. you that, but the one <laughs> sentence is stop caring so much about the outcome. Right, yeah. Um, so I fully believe it, and maybe it's like, okay, maybe I think it's correct or true because I also agree with it, and it. I see that in my past. I realize the same things. 
but then the next thing people say is, but then how do I, like, where do my standards of improvement go if, if the result doesn't matter? And, and I do struggle to, to, to talk back to that with a response and you might have a better response because uh, you've thought about this more, but um, it, it is hard to balance the striving and motivation with, you know what, it's okay. I don't, I don't ultimately need to get better. So I don't, where do you find that to be able to improve still? Well, I think getting better and trying to get better can be separated. Mm. You can really, really, you know, try your hard. And that can actually go against, against you if you're trying in the wrong things. For example, you're constantly tinkering with your swing, searching for the, the latest new thing that's going to turn you into Tiger Woods overnight. I was there. I used to believe it existed. It, it, it doesn't. Um, so that search for perfection can actually be the biggest creator and destroyer of, of elite players. I mean, you can, you can pick a number of top players who have gone and overhauled their swing and then fallen off. Actually, you can't because you don't know where they are anymore. <laughs> um, you can have the reverse of that where players don't do enough change as well. You know, stuff, stuff is happening and they just stick, stick with the same stuff and they, they can fall off. That's rarer to happen. Um, Sorry, I've lost the question now. <laughs> how do you how do you strive for success with right. whilst the result doesn't matter? Exactly. Um, I think you can still do stuff like I still play games on the range. I will still hit with my GC quad, and I'll be looking at the stats and saying, "All right, I want to get a six percent proximity to the pin," or I'm just going to track it and see what it is. So I think tracking those things, but just trying to be objective about it, seeing everything as a learning experience. So mm. I think it was Shakespeare, Shakespeare's line, there's nothing good or bad, that, but thinking makes it so. I think that's, mm. that's the line. Okay. Nothing, nothing is good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. And mm. I had, because it's in Shakespeare and you kind of have to think about it and break that mm. sentence down. So nothing is good or bad. But thinking makes it so. So it's only really your interpretation of something right. that makes it bad. The labels we put on things. Exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. You hit a shot left. Oh, that's bad. It's like, well, well, it's not really. It doesn't matter. It's a left shot. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. It's it, in, in the grand scheme of history, it's nothing. But thinking makes it so. So what can we do from that? I call this Spock golf. Mm -hmm. Every shot is a learning experience. Logic. And I mean, it's so cliche for anybody who's, who's been into any kind of self-help or, or psychology. Every shot is a learning experience. But I know there are lots of people out there who are not like that. They don't know that. So they, they use it to break themselves. So what can we learn from a left shot? Well, for me, it's like, okay, the club face was two degrees more left on that one. That's all it was. Okay, I've hit 10 shots. The average club face was one degree more left than usual. Let's do something to change that now. So it's just, it, you're still improving, but you're doing it from a non-emotional, purely logical perspective. Spock golf, right? He's purely logical, non-emotional. I think the emotion and the frustration comes in for most golfers when they haven't got a clue what to do. Mm. It's like a fear response. They're hitting bad shots. I don't know what to do. I'm in panic mode. And so, again, for me, there are other ways around that. It's, it's building an improved understanding of impact factors. So I'm hitting it left. I haven't got a clue what to do. Well, these are the two things that cause it to go left. Either your path is too far, far right or the face is too close to the path. In fact, you could boil it down for most people into one thing. The face is just too close to the path. That's all it is. You know, for most people, their swing path is actually within about six degrees either side of the target. So you don't need to change the path for most people. You can just tinker with the club face until the result is on target. And when you simplify it down like that, and you can show people the numbers from a, a GC quad, um, it, it helps them to understand it so they don't feel lost. They might still be hitting the left shot, but now they understand what it is. And then once you start to add tools on for them, you say, well, change your grip here. And you see how the numbers change. They start to feel, oh, I'm understanding. I'm linking things up now. So that when they go off, I still hit it left. I, I'm a 
coach and I still hit it left, but I don't feel that frustration response because I know what it is and I have tools to fix it. So there's no frustration there. So I think, I think all of those things, I've probably thrown 10 different things there, you know, Spock golf, uh, bigger understanding, bigger toolbox. Um, but it, again, it all goes into the mix of you can improve without having to have those negative emotions there purely yeah. logical. Yeah. And, and I think where I have learned to like, from my own experience and what helps players is instead of your standard being the result, your standard should be your effort and how much effort you put in and how much quality your time is. And that, you know, I think it would be, a, a, would qualify as a Buddhist philosophy to, to love the journey more than the destination. Uh, I don't, I don't know specifically, but if, if you're more in love with the journey, you don't care so much. Like every shot isn't a destination that you wanted to go right or wrong. You, your plans are more, uh, less in your hands. They're more, I'm just in love with this journey. I'm going to enjoy it as I go. I'm going to put all the effort I can in every single time. And that is your standard. Um, so that journey includes, and that quality time includes the things you're saying. Um, and instead of getting bent out of shape every time you're, you're, you're stepping back and, and not rushing to conclusions. You're saying, okay, this is what happened. This is what I need to do. Um, so the quality of effort is maybe the motivating factor rather than the result, right? Yeah. I mean, that's how we train, train kids, right? I was, I was talking to my wife recently. We don't, we don't have kids at the moment, but we are planning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was telling her about the philosophy of, you know, when a kid does something really well, you don't say, Oh, you played really well today. Mm-hmm. You, you might interpret it as, Oh, I, I saw that you tried really hard today. Well done. Um, and so, because when kids are praised, apparently I might be butchering the research here, but when kids are praised on the result, that actually creates more anxiety because say that, say it's a, a math test or something. The next time they go into that test, their brain is saying unconsciously or consciously, I need to get a good result in this or I'm not going to get praised, which causes anxiety because you're not in control ultimately of, of what the result is. You know, you can have a test that's more difficult or it was on something that you didn't revise. Whereas when kids are praised for effort, it reduces that anxiety because they know that, oh, as long as I try my hardest, I'm going to get praised on some kind of level. It might be unconscious. And as a result, apparently, those kids that are praised more on effort do better because they try more. Whereas the kids who, who... didn't lots of them self-sabotage they say well i'm not going to try at all you you know that everybody experiences it right where you've got a four foot putt and you walk up to him backhand it why right why because you're you're deep down you know well if i stand up and and actually set up for this and actually try and miss it that's going to affect me more so let's not try and backhand it because at least if i miss it then i wasn't trying yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's less of a knock on the ego. Yeah. And we all do that unconsciously. And I think that comes from being praised on results mm. instead that's the, of effort. That's the Shakespeare, it, nothing's good or bad until we think about it. A, mm-hmm. a math test, I mean, it, it is an empirical number based on what you know and what you've studied, but yeah. it's only good or bad once we label it. I mean, mm-hmm. a 68 is just, 68% of the things you knew and the other you didn't. And that's only bad if we praise it or don't praise it. Or what we learn from it as well. Mm. I mean, some of the, some of the, there's a great philosophy of, you know, anything you, you can think of anything that bad that's happened in your life. Um, hopefully nothing too bad has happened, mm. but you can actually link it to the good things that you have in your life. Now, 
so you know i i could link something horrible that happened to me to to meeting my wife you know well if mm. that didn't happen then this wouldn't have happened and then right. this wouldn't have happened and then i wouldn't have come to america and then mm. so you know i i had a bully at work i was using this this to explain to my to my wife because she had a bully recently at work mm. um luckily we solved it but uh, okay, yeah it yeah. still happens in adult adulthood yeah right but i was talking to her about my first coaching job i had a bully um, you know, he would steal phone calls off, off me, um, and steal clients and anything that I said as a golf coach, he would knock down. And that really upset me at the time I was 21, um, very, very egocentric. But what it did for me is when we had a, a an argument or we had a discussion, he would knock my stuff down. I would go home and research that that night so i would say something like oh well the club face controls this and he said no it doesn't i go and i would spend three hours researching that and that solidified my arguments so that bully actually taught me to have better arguments to know how to research things to back up your opinions um, and ultimately increased my knowledge tenfold to the point that I wrote a book yeah, <laughs> on the right. stuff. Some of the stuff we argued on are in my book, which is, yeah. is now a bestseller, right. which has led me to, you know, come to America, have my dream job and have more importantly, have my dream wife. Mm -hmm. So again, all these bad things that have happened in the past, as long as we can take the positive out of them, we can, uh, we can move forward with it. So again, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so how we interpret it makes right. it so. Right. So before we get too far, I, I did have a few questions from some people. I, I asked if any, if anyone had any questions and, um, you got a good following. So I, I figured someone might want to ask some questions of you. Um, so from, from Steve, he, he said he's read the practice manual, that book you just referenced the bestseller. Um, and he said, how do you break through scoring plateaus? Ooh, that's a good one. <sighs> That is a good one. So, I mean, on the topic of psychology, again, yeah. I see things in different levels as well. So, you know, sports psychologists will talk a lot about the um, things like the somatic symptoms, so body language, right? If your body language is down or anxiety, the feeling of nerves, and they try to control those things, mm. which is okay. You know, it has been shown that pr uh, promoting a good body language actually feeds down the mm. system. But if we look at well, what's causing someone to have a bad body language, well, you could go into things like, well, let's do breathing exercises or let's change the way we think, right? Because if you change the way you think, the body language usually comes with it. So usually body language is an unconscious manifestation or symptom of what we're thinking of. And to that question, well, what causes what we're thinking of? the words that we're thinking of. Why would someone stand there and visualize the out of bounds on the left, whereas another person would stand on the same tee and all they're seeing is the middle of the fairway? I remember playing Celtic Manor with my dad and at the end of the round, he said, oh, there was so much water on that course. And I played really well that day and I'd been playing well the week coming into it. And I said, really? I didn't see water. I literally didn't, well, my eyes saw it, but your brain filters out information it's called the reticular activating system. It filters out information. And so say you've, this even happens in adulthood where you learn a new word. Like, what does that mean? And then you look mm -hmm. it up and all of a sudden everywhere, it's on the news, it's right. someone to say, it's, it's your brain. It's always been there in the environment, but now your brain is aware of it. It filters in this information. And it can also filter out information. So to, to that question, can you see how I go off in loads of different Sure, yes, <laughs> I love it. Um, to that question, how do you break through scoring plateaus? The core of golf philosophy for me is your belief system. That feeds into all the other stuff. If you have the correct belief system or if you have a good belief system, you don't see the water. If you have a good belief system, you don't feel the anxiety. If you have a good belief system, your body language is automatically good. So what do I mean by a belief system? Well, it's, it's the unconscious things that you've told yourself so much. Um, so I'll give you a specific example of that. I used to struggle to break par. Now I had the ability to do it 
In fact, I can remember probably 10 times where I was coming in on the last three holes, three, four, sometimes five under par. And the last three holes were easy. And I would finish level par. Why? Well, obviously, as a kid, I would go off and try and work on my technique. Had nothing to do with my technique. It would be nerves because I'd be focusing too much on the score. And again, I could look at the symptoms. Why? I'm feeling nervous. Let's try and control the nerves. Let's try and control my body language. Let's try and control my swing. They're all symptoms. The symptom was I didn't believe I should be under par. Mm. I thought because I was a handicapped golfer, I was like maybe one or two and a handicap. Mm. So in your head, you believe, well, that's my level. I've got to shoot at some mm-hmm. unconscious mm-hmm. level. I should Deep, shoot yeah. that. Mm. And I, I don't deserve to be under par. Um, and, and then you, all of a sudden you start to ruin the, the par so much. You start to blow up on the last three holes. That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. Now, what changed for me is I actually got so frustrated with golf that I quit for two years i went to university and i studied i quit for two years i studied to be i became a pga pro but i didn't play during that time Mm -hmm. but people would ask me and say oh so you must be a pro i went yeah (laughs) yeah i am and they oh you must be really good i'm like yeah i am and they say oh you must shoot under par all the time and i lied i said yeah i do i told that lie for so long but when I came back to golf two years later and I had my pro card, now it was only a PGA card. Right. But now I'm like, well, I'm a pro. I deserve mm. to be under par. From then on, I mean, it took me a few weeks to get my skills back. Right. But from then on, when I was under par, I felt comfortable. Mm. And once I had shot that one round under par, it was easy from then. It's like that four-minute mile thing. Once right. that barrier is broken, it was easy from then. And then also, you know, a couple of later, years later, I shot eight under par for nine holes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and, I had a, and I had a three-putt in it. Whoa. I had a three-putt in it, yeah. And now what allowed me to do that was I went out and I, I played with a bunch of beginners. So I was, a, I was a coach and I was just demonstrating for them. They didn't have a clue what was going on, right? So <laughs> it was me just hitting shots to five feet, holding yeah. it, hitting shots to 20 feet and holding it. They didn't have a clue that was good. They thought, oh, that's a pro. That's what they do right. all the time. And so I didn't feel any pressure. You know, in fact, I was kind of wanting to fail <laughs> because I, was right. like, I don't want to shoot this great <laughs> round in front of these people who haven't got a clue what's going on. Yeah. And so I broke that scoring barrier. And since then, it's been so easy to do that. Whenever I'm under par, I just feel comfortable. Mm. And there's almost no limit now for me. Mm. So how do you break through your scoring barriers? I think telling yourself what you're capable of. I think visualization, not before the, the shot, not even before the round, but after the round, try and go through rounds in your head and tell yourself what that could have potentially been. So I would, if I was you, I'd go through rounds of golf and any bad shot that you have, men- mentally replace that with a better shot. Okay, so you duff the chip on it, right? Go to it, don't visualize it, don't re-visualize it, replace that shot in your head. Hit a good shot, do it a few times in a row, then write down on a scorecard what that would have been if you'd hit a decent shot. It doesn't have to be perfect, you don't have to hold it, be realistic about it. Mm. Um, and then at the end of it, you've got this scorecard, you've gone through and you visualized it all. And you've got this scorecard of what that could potentially have been. And now that's a signal to your brain of this is how good I am potentially. This is what I can potentially be. And as long as you don't let that frustrate you by increasing your expectations, but it opens up your brain. If you do that enough, I firmly believe that you can, you can reset the limiter on yourself on the lower end. Kind of like taking the limiter off a buggy, right? It's mm. like, well, I can go faster now. Yes, you, yeah. you can still crash it. You, you can still <laughs> hit right. some bad shots, but my lower end is much more improved. And that's what I found with my own game. I was frustratingly consistent as an amateur. Mm. I would shoot level par to five over. Mm. That's incredibly consistent, but it's frustrating. Now, what stopped me going higher than that 
Well, I was too good to go higher. Mm, right. I was going to shoot more than five over because I, I was an under-par player. But mm. what stopped me go lower than that was this. Mm. <laughs> Once I changed my belief system, that set the, low, the, the limiter on the lower end dropped mm. off. I think for many players, that, that is, uh, that's the thing that's holding them back. So telling yourself the right things over and over, visualization, I think, is key. I mean, there's, there's loads of things, but probably the biggest thing that most people can relate to is experiencing it once mm. right we've all had that round of golf where we didn't realize what we were shooting we look at the scorecard at the end and we're like shit i broke 80 yeah. oh my god and then after that it's a little easier mm. um so sometimes scoring barriers can be broken more consistently because of technical change lots of times more often it can be a, a mental change that mm. allows us to achieve our potential more often mm. That's an amazing answer. <laughs> Thank you for that thorough answer. I told you this could be a five-hour conversation. <laughs> I, I didn't lie. When you when you ask me a question, my mind instantly goes off into five different. I'm scrambling to answer all of those yeah, yeah, questions yeah. that I, I create. Well, it's. I mean, it's good because everyone comes at it from a different angle. So, if someone, you might catch someone's ear by saying one thing that the question didn't even intend. So, I I I love it. Um, so another question uh if you don't mind answering questions yeah, yeah, i didn't yeah, even I'm, ask I'm good. Okay. all right cool <laughs> um let's see okay uh when you're playing with a new foursome how do you calm the jitters slash nerves understand they don't care they do not care about your outcome at all mm -hmm. um they might be slightly impressed if you're hitting good shots but you're gonna have to be really good to impress most people i mean most people have seen everything they've seen everything from other sides but as you're if you top a ball they, everybody's so concerned with their own game that they don't care Yes, if you have an absolute nightmare, they might get a little bit frustrated with you. But again, you have to you have to be so far on the extremes, you know, really pro level impressive or really, you know, complete beginner nightmare to for their brains, for your playing partner's brains to have any kind of effect. Hmm. Um, so that's one thought that you could do. But again, the other part is just don't care. I mean, if, if I, when I go out with my buddies, we don't care if we miss it left because we know so much about the game. It's like, we know the pros miss the fairway 40% of the time. Right. So when I stand on the tee, I'm like, eh, if it's a 50, 50, yeah. I don't care if I, if I, if I nail it, great. If I miss it, it doesn't matter. So that takes a lot of stress off you. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think those two things, understanding, and understanding stats, understanding what creates a bad shot as well, even a top shot. I mean, all you've done is this much of an error, right? A fat shot might be this much of an error. I did something where I looked at the geometry of different angle of attacks and fat shots, and I found that a drop in height, so say you just flexed your knees right. or dropped your head, just quarter of an inch, that can relate to hitting three inches behind the ball, mm. which is a complete disaster. So understanding that again, that can be, that can make you a little fearful, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <stand> but up. <laughs> understanding that when you fat a shot, just going, eh, probably mm. just drop, drop quarter of an inch. Oh. I'm, I'm a human, forgive myself. Right. So all those things go into the mix of, again, stop, stop caring, caring so much about it and understand that they don't care either. So just right. get on with it, get on with your game and, enjoy it ask them about the game if right. you're having a nightmare pick up if, it, if it's a good format for you yeah yeah and and realizing you probably wouldn't be playing with these i mean everyone's a human i think you said that it's like we all know golf is hard and likely if this is a, a new group of people that you maybe know from other circles of life they're your friends they want to see you do well they don't they're not going to berate you and make fun of you and at the end of the day, who cares if they do like it? I'm sorry that you guys think you're so much better than me to make fun of me. So it's, there's, there's several ways to, to resolve that. There's a, there's an interesting, there's a book called um, man's search for meaning by Viktor mm -hmm. Frankl. And he was a guy in Auschwitz and he talks about a, a philosophy. I think that the main philosophy he took from it or developed from it was actually to take your, your biggest fear 
and push it to the fore, forefront because you, you dismantle it. We often try to hide our fears. So I, I don't like presenting in front of a lot of people. Mm. Um, and so what I do when I've started presenting, I go up there and I, I, instead of doing the, the typical thing you're told of like, let's have positive body, uh, body language and act like you own the stage. I actually walk up and I goes, I, I go, guys, I'm shitting myself here. I'm really, <laughs> really frightened. I'm not used to, I'm not used to presenting. Um, I'm nervous as hell. I'm shaking, but I'm going to be out here and I'm going to give you the best thing that I can. And that does two things. Number one, it completely disarms your own fear because now you've just given it to everybody. You've just told everybody and they don't care. The other part of that is that crowd actually sees you more as personable. They're like, Oh, so if is if your voice wavers a little, they actually, they're like, Oh, Right. It's not feeling sorry for you, but they start to focus on the good parts. Right. They're like, oh, well, actually, his information is really good, even though he's nervous here. Whereas if you go up there like a, can mm. I swear on this, like a cocky shit? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> and, you're, and you're like, I'm really confident. Actually, people want to kind of knock you down a little yeah. bit. And they're more looking for holes in your argument mm. when, you, when you're overconfident. So, Again, my, my wife is always worried because she's quite a nervous character. And she's like, oh, I'm going for an interview. And I, I, I'm worried that I don't come across well because I'm not confident. She has an 80% success rate of getting the interviews. Mm. And there's normally about 10 or 20 people for those interviews. And I say, probably the reason why you're getting these things is because you're nervous. Those people see you as very personable. Mm -hmm. They know you have the qualifications for it. You answer the correct questions correctly but you're not going in there like yeah. I, i'm great for this job <laughs> yeah. so in terms of in terms of golf i've gone off on such a <laughs> in terms of golf if you're playing with people who you don't know don't try and act like the the best golfer that you're not go in there and say oh guys you know i'm I'm a bad 18 handicap. I'm out here to enjoy it today. So excuse if I have any bad shots. We all do it. I know I'm not great, but let's, let's have a good time. I'm going to have a good time with you guys. Hopefully you can, uh, you can take some of my bad shots along the way and help me find balls. That immediately disarms them and it, it stops the pressure from you. Because if the first shot you've topped that you've already told them you're going to do that. And it takes the bad shots or the, the pressure away from you. So, yeah, Victor Frankl's take your fear, push it to the for forefront yeah. instead of trying to hide from it. All right. So next time you go out to play with a new foursome, read Victor Frankl first. <laughs> right? It's actually a really short book, so you can okay. read it in a, in a couple of hours. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. So final question. Um, what areas do you see that people could make the most improvement? Like, I guess if you had to maybe give a bulk prescription to the most people, like what is that usually for people? Strike. Okay. Uh, I could lump that into, yeah. So, so ground contact and face contact are mm -hmm. the two components of strike. Ground contact has a low point element to it. So right. think of a hula hoop. So the club comes down, reaches a low point, and then it starts to go up. So the lowest point of that, you can shift that side to side. And you can also shift the hula hoop deeper and shallower into the ground. Mm. So there's three things that create strike, but you could lump it into one concept, which is hit the ground here. So I'll often start with beginners. I'll get them on a slab of concrete. And I'll get an old club and I'll put a little dot on the ground. I'll say, hit the spot for me. And that combines all three skills. If they are a little deeper, a little, uh, little higher, they miss it. If their low point's not in the right position, they'll miss it. And in fact, if they're side to side, if they miss it side to side, so say they're standing this way and they, they hit the concrete too far this way, yeah. that relates to a heel contact. Right. And if they hit the concrete this side, that relates to a toe contact. Mm. So you're working on three skills at once, just with that one thought. Mm. And I've done so many, um, so many tests with this where I take the first three swings of a player and I note down how many inches away from that spot they hit. I say nothing. I go off come back again. This might not be in a paid lesson. <laughs> it might be in a group coaching scenario, uh, but I go off, come back uh, five minutes later and you can see anywhere between a 50 and a 99% improvement in their ground wow. contact without telling them anything about weight shift, shaft lean, mm. 
And the beauty of that is if you film their swing before and after, they often develop good traits. Mm. So you could take someone on their back foot who's hitting seven inches behind that, mm. that spot. And by the time they figured out how to hit the spot, all of a sudden they're shifting their weight forwards. And you say, well, so what are you doing differently? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> so that's yeah. the concept of, uh, this, is, this is one of my core philosophies of giving an appropriate task yeah. that self-organizes techniques. So instead of telling people a bunch of how-to information, you give them the task and the, the technique comes for free, which is how we learn everything actually, mm. apart from golf. You, know, you mm. don't learn to put a fork into your mouth by learning arm position right. and elbow, bend wrist. You, you put your fork into your mouth, you miss a few times and eventually mm. you get it and the arm movement comes for free. Mm. And the beauty of learning that way, when our brain learns that way, it encodes it in a way that is more adaptable. So if you put your elbow on the table, now you can still put the fork in the mouth. Or the golf version of that is if you're on a, a slope that's right. up, down, left, right, um, you, your brain can figure out better mm. how to do it. Whereas if you'd learn it through weight shift, mechanical things, your brain is not as adaptable to those things. So, I mean, we could talk for five hours on that. Yeah. Alone, that's the, the number one thing is strike quality. Yeah. That can be separated into three things, right. but you can base that down into one task, hit the ground here. Right. Uh, another one I've seen of the, like, figure out the, I don't, I forget the words you used, but give yourself a task and the body self-organizes to it yeah. is stick a, an alignment rod in the ground, maybe five feet between your ball and the eventual target aim directly at the alignment rod and, and tell the player, okay, I want you to start it right of it and draw it back or start it left yeah. of it and fade it around. It's saying, it's like your body might, you might hit the stick the first five, six times, but eventually you'll figure out how to, your body figures out how to do it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That goes into the, the concept of that's, that's another, um, hugely important part of my philosophy is experimentation mm. so and you'd have different levels of that so with a complete beginner i might tell them the concept of the club face is going to control the starting direction and have a huge influence on the end direction so let's see if we can control where we present the face more open or more closed just mm. through feel and so I will say to someone, I'll put that stick in the ground. And for a complete beginner, it might be hit five shots left of the stick. Now hit five shots right. It's that simple. Mm. Now, when they get that, when they get a, good, a decent level of success with that, we might move on to hit a big right and then a small right and then a big left and a small left. And then again, we repeat that a few times. Once they get a good success level, we'd move on to three different versions, big, medium, and small. If you have radar, you can quantify it into yardages as well. So you can say, I want you to hit the first one between 30 and, and 50 yards right. And then the next one between 20 and, and 40 yards right. And then the next one between zero and 20 yards right. So you've got 20 yard increments right. on either side. So again, that's a pretty, a relatively simple task. Lots mm -hmm. of people can't do it. By the time you get to tour pro level, I might be doing the same thing where there's just um, five yard increments mm -hmm. either side. So it's really difficult. So zero to five yards right, five to 10 yards right, 10 to 15 yards right, and the same for left. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing by that is you're, you're training a skill, and that's very different to training a technique. You're training a skill that is very, very usable. So when it comes to, if you're on the range one day, you're warming up for a tournament and you're hitting it left, there's no reason now why you can't say, what does it feel like? What did it feel like when I was training to present the face five, deg five degrees more open or two degrees more open or you know, hit 10 degrees more right. So you can neutralize it now through feel. And I, I almost play purely on feel now. They say you can't train feel, that's rubbish. You can, <laughs> yeah. so trash that you can. Yeah. Um, you can train it through the method we just said. And you can do that for all the major skills. You can do it with hitting different parts of the face. So I do it where I say, you know, for a beginner, it might be hit the toe, then hit mm -hmm. the heel intentionally. For an advanced golfer, we might be working on millimeters. So five, five millimeters toe, 10 millimeters toe, 15 millimeters toe. And you've got certain windows as well. 
so you you set the task level based on the the beginner uh, on the, on the level of the player right. you wouldn't right. you wouldn't give you wouldn't give a beginner the task of hit five yards right, ten mm. yards right, because they they can't feel that. But they can certainly feel hit just hit any any amount right, hit any amount left. Mm. So yeah, the easier tasks for for worse players, more complex or more finely tuned tasks for better players. Yeah. So I I mentioned being kind of currently relevant to the U.S. Open. I won't ask you who you think. I I won't ask you about what players are in better position. Uh, I, I don't care honestly at all. Um, but as far as generally knowing how to play tough golf courses, better, narrower fairways, taller, rough, um, firm, fast greens. I mean, is, is there a, something you would tell a player psychologically, this is how you should approach a super difficult golf course. You know what? I haven't put as much thought into that one it's probably be my shortest answer sure. <laughs> um i haven't put as much thought into that um i i suppose that it would be more preparation mm. that i would talk about with that type of player so i would you remember on, on I, I don't know if they still have it on the computer game the playstation game where you could tiger proof the course yeah. so you could yeah. grow the rough up narrow the fairways <laughs> well tiger proof your own course when you're practicing mm. Make make your practice tougher for those events. So one of the ways that I do, I call I call this game Impossible Golf, and there are mm. there are a bunch of different rules for it. But you could, uh, if if you hit the ball in the rough, your next shot has to be a sand wedge. Uh, right. So when you're playing around the court, around your right. own course, so it might not be real. I mean, you could play, hit the ball into your rough around your home course, and it's it's you could easily get a seven or six iron on it, but for these rules, you have to hit a sand wedge. Um, another one I, I like to play, another rule of that is if when you hit the green, when your ball is on the green, you have to drop it um, five paces directly away from the flag. Right. So your ball, your, the flag is here. If you imagine a bird's eye view, the flag is here, your ball is here. Mm-hmm. You pick your ball up and you drop it one, yes. two, three, four, five paces that way. So that actually trains us to think more about hitting the fat side of the green. Mm. Because if you hit a shot at five feet and it's on the on the um, short side, mm. you might be dropping in the, in the rough. Mm. Whereas if you hit it to thirty feet and, and you're on the fat side, at least you're going to be dropping it. If you're dropping in the rough, you've got a long uh, right. run that you can play. Um, more rules for that: you could play bunkers as water hazards mm. as well. So right. I used to do that when I when I worked at IMG Academies in Florida. We used to take the kids out, and I do that with them. And they would struggle. Players who were, you know, close to breaking seventy consistently, they would struggle to break eighty-five sometimes. Oh. So that really lowers their expectations as well, because they're like, "Wow, I'm not as good as I thought I was." <laughs> There'd be a bit more frustration there. Sure. But again, right, Victor Frankl, don't hide from the frustration. Learn to deal with it. Put sure. yourself in situations that frustrate you. You learn to deal with it. Um, but yeah, it helps lower their expectations as well. So they lead, they enter that tournament knowing the reality here. And uh, lots of players will kind of figure out different strategies of what works. So should I hit a driver here? Um, right. Right. Overtrain yourself to, to prepare for the difficulty that's going to happen. Weight training, right? You don't, yeah. you don't grow muscle by lifting cans of beans. You, you grow <laughs> by lifting something heavy, and it's yeah. the same in golf as well. Golf is the only sport where we train in an easier environment on a driving range with no consequence, wide open fairway. Right. It's, just, it's the only sport that we do that. Yeah, really. yeah, and that, what you just said, could go off on a couple-hour conversation, so we, <laughs> we won't do sure. that. Maybe next time. But um, just as a final question, uh, it's a question I ask everybody. It's an unfair question, but you seem to be good to qualified to answer this. What percentage of golf is mental and what percentage is physical? I think you can't separate them at all. Mm. I mean, it's a hundred percent both. I mean, okay, mm. here's, here's the answer to that. Golf or the, the result is 100% technical, right? Mm. It's, it's inarguable. That result is a result of what happened to the physics of impact, which you could then backward reflect to to the swing if you wanted to, you don't have to. Um, But what drove that technique? That's the mind. You know, when I'm playing golf, I would say 90% of the bad shots I've hit 
have some kind of mental route to them. Mm. So I'll stand up, I'll stand on a tee and I'll, I'll be looking and I'm like, well, that, that out of bounds on the left. I don't want, I don't want to go there. I have a tendency to miss left. Let's, let's aim to the right. And you're standing over there. You're aiming at the right side. You make your back swing, you come down. And then all of a sudden there's an unconscious thing that says, well, you don't want to hit your block here. <laughs> you know, that occasional block you're aiming right now. And it, it, this is all unconscious, but, but then you, you, you hit that, your hands take over and you snap pocket left. Yes, you could look at the swing on video and say, oh, your hands took over. You could look at the GC quad numbers, the radar numbers, and say, well, the club face is three degrees more close on that. But what caused that? Right. This. It was a double bluff, effectively, right? Mm. And so, uh, you know, uh, when you talk about unconscious mechanisms for bad shots, conscious mechanisms, it's all brain-driven. Our technique, our swing is driven by our brain. And so you can't separate them. Golf, the result is 100% technical because it's a result of the impact. But that is 100% mental as mm. well if you're talking about conscious and unconscious processes. So they're, mm. they're intertwined so much that you right. cannot separate them. Yeah, and it'd be like saying your body is part mental and part physical. Like your your brain is part of your body. It's, it's not this thing that you can take out and only be physical it's it's all part of the same system yeah yeah um oh we could go really deep with that one (laughs) there's a small percentage of stuff that is um that doesn't require the brain and people are just studying this more now there's kind of reflexes Mm -hmm. in the body that actually bypass the conscious and unconscious brain um it's a really deep topic but again it's not controllable it's right. not controllable, but it's right. really interesting. When it, when it comes to how we learn and how approaches to learning, it's quite relevant. And the stuff that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, exploring, that's when that actually becomes important because it builds up those reflexes in the body that are, yeah. that are pretty good. Okay, cool. So thank you for your time. Um, for the U.S. Open, are you pulling for Tiger? I see your hat. Yeah, yeah. If there's anybody I'm pulling for, it's him. I, nice. I won't watch golf unless he's playing. That's really bad. Me too. <laughs> Both it's of awful. Us. I'm sure that's a lot pretty of people bad. Hate me for that. Well, that's okay. They can hate us. <laughs> no, it's become with Bryson. It's become a bit more exciting. It's, it's yeah. got to have something in there. And obviously, Tiger was such a different player at the time. Now everybody is kind of similar to him. They all bomb it. Yeah. Um, but now with Bryson, there's a little bit something different to, to kind right. of peer in on and True. look at. All right. Well, cool. Thank you so much, Adam. No problem. It was fun. All right. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. See ya. All right. Podcast is over. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, I would love it if you subscribed on Apple, left a review. It means everything to me. People that leave reviews that took time out of their day to actually say something about the podcast, even if it's negative, I need the feedback. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm I'm a beginner at this. I don't know. So leave the feedback. Let me know what I need to do. Let me know what you like about it. And then share the episode. Because I know that you know someone that needs to hear this and needs to improve their mental game. Everyone I always talk to says, oh boy, I need help with my mental game. Well, you probably know someone like that too. So share this with them. They will get a lot of help out of it. Only, only if you got some value out of it. If you didn't, I don't want you sharing it with anybody. (laughs) Okay, thanks for listening. Catch you guys next time.